Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice because we understand you are on your throne. And because that is true, all is well. And so we come to you now and we ask, Father, that you would meet us here as we look at this wonderful parable of our Lord. Help us to understand it, help us to apply it, and help us to live within the confines of your word and the principles you lay out for us here. And we ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 4 and verses 26 to 34. The theme of this little section is the coming of the kingdom of God. And the coming of God's kingdom which is a topic that theologians love to debate and have debated for centuries. And we won't get into debates here, hopefully. Uh, Hopefully none of you will start lobbing things at me. Um, But I want to show you, hopefully, that the kingdom of God, the, the reality of God's kingdom is much more than just fodder for theological discussion. But the way that you think about the kingdom of God will determine how you live your life. I could look at your life and I could tell you what you think about God's kingdom. You could do the same for me. But how you think about God's kingdom will determine how you live, how you love others, and how you serve the Lord Jesus. Let me show you what I mean with a couple of illustrations. One, in Jesus' day, there was a group called the Zealots. You're familiar with the Zealots? They were essentially political revolutionaries who thought that you could bring about God's kingdom through political action. And they were a group who had adopted the theology of the Pharisees, and they had mixed it with the militant uh, tendencies of a group called the Freedom Fighters. So essentially what you had was weaponized Pharisaism, and they were not happy with situations as they were, and so they decided... Uh, that they would usher in the kingdom of God by force, by human might and willpower and political strategy. And so they attempted to reinstate the kingdom of God on earth uh, beginning in A.D. 66. And so they led a revolt against Rome that ultimately ended with their destruction and the destruction of the temple and really ended the the freedom fighter, zealot movement entirely. Uh, Although the idea of the zealots, of strong-arming the kingdom of God into existence, didn't die with them. Uh, Throughout history, there have been others who have taken up that mantle. And one example here is a little extreme, but I'll give it to you because extreme examples are entertaining sometimes. Um, In the 1530s, there was a group called the Munsterites led by an Anabaptist named John Mathis, who declared the city of Munster, Germany, to be the new Jerusalem. And under his leadership, the city was to be made ready and prepared for Christ's return and earthly reign in Munster, Germany. You didn't know that, did you? Well, that's what John Mathis thought, and he was able to sort of rally lots of people together and move into this city the city of Munster. In order to purge the evil from the city of Munster, Mathis authorized Christians to wield a literal sword against all ungodliness. Later, the city appointed 12 elders, whom they called the elders of Israel, to rule over the city as warriors, to physically get everyone in line. And they said that at this point, the, the leadership of Mathis was more like David. You know, it was full of war and blood until the Lord Jesus would come and bring a peaceable time in. So we're killing you, but just it's okay because Jesus is coming very soon and peace will be here. And they even introduced polygamy under the impression that if they could get the population in Munster to skyrocket, then the Lord would be forced to come down and, and take care of business. Now, all of this was driven by the idea, among other ideas uh, with the Munsterites, but the main idea here 
was that you could somehow, they could somehow cause the kingdom of God to come on earth by their own strength and ingenuity. But like the zealots of the first century, their attempt to strong arm the kingdom of God also failed miserably. Only, it was only about a year or so until the new Jerusalem of Munster was overthrown by a coalition of Protestant and Catholic forces and the Munster radicals were exterminated. Now, there are stories like this that fill church history books. Uh, but despite the failures of the past and these attempts uh, to strong-arm the kingdom of God, the idea that men can somehow bring the kingdom of God to earth by their own power has come in and out of favor throughout history. And interestingly, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there is a growing interest in this sort of method of strong-arming God's kingdom into existence right now. I won't name names or movements, but just Google it. Uh, It's everywhere. It's not as extreme as the Munsterites or the first century zealots, but in my view, it's operating off of the same principle. And that principle is this, that the kingdom of God can be ushered in through the arm of the flesh. And not only does history cry out and tell us that willpower does not bring in the kingdom of God, the Scriptures themselves are clear that Jesus has not called us as Christians to build a kingdom on earth for Him to come and receive. We know that Jesus will return to earth and bring His kingdom with Him. Because His kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not a kingdom that can be built or even affected by the hands of men. It's a kingdom that is not of this world. Meaning that the mechanisms one might use to bring in a worldly kingdom cannot and will not be used to bring in the kingdom of God on earth. And that's what our text lays out for us this morning. It comes to us and cuts through the confusion of political philosophy and man-centered attempts to bring in the kingdom. And it reminds us that the kingdom of God is going to come exactly as God promised. And if we want to live faithfully for the Lord in a society like ours, we need to know what the Lord expects of us regarding the coming of His kingdom, and we need to know what we should be expecting from God. How will His kingdom come on earth? After all, it's His kingdom and not ours. And so to help us here, Jesus gives two metaphors to illustrate the coming of the kingdom of God. And we'll see in these verses that the kingdom of God is going to come in two ways. Verses 26 to 29, it's going to come sovereignly. And then in verses 30 to 32, it's going to come surprisingly. And we'll look at both of these over the next two weeks. So we won't cover it all this morning. We'll just look at the sovereign dimension this morning. But before we get into the text, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Mark 4, beginning in verse 26. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. You may be seated. So two parables here 
verses 26, really to 32, and verses 33 and 34 are kind of like an epilogue on the whole uh, teaching discourse here. But two parables that demonstrate how the kingdom of God is going to come or how it's going to grow. And the first sort of dynamic about the kingdom that Jesus lays out for us is that it's going to come sovereignly, or we could say it comes by a sovereign process, I think is the way it says it's put in your notes. It comes about, the kingdom of God is coming by a sovereign process. That's the point of verses 26 to 29. And to say that another way really is to say that the coming and the growth of God's kingdom does not hinge does not hinge on human effort, human ingenuity, or human competency. It comes about by a sovereign process. And to really see that, to understand and appreciate that dimension in this parable, we need to remember that right before Jesus starts giving these parables, what has happened? Well, the most powerful, influential people in Israel, have decided that they want to see Jesus dead. Mark 3, 6. They, they decided we should kill Him. Now, in Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, and then the Herodians, now these were the movers and shakers in the land. If you wanted to get something done, you needed their help. To lose their support, would typically have been the death of any religious movement within Judaism itself. And so here's Jesus. He's got his motley group of disciples with him. You know, we've already looked at them, and they're not very glorious, kind of like you and I, no offense. Um, they're very basic people. And the people they really would want on their team are saying, we need to kill them. And so here Jesus stands with his rough bunch of simple men called his disciples and you have to imagine from their perspective what are they thinking from their perspective you can only imagine how this looks i mean jesus has been preaching the kingdom of god is coming right he's been mark 1 15 this is what he's preaching the kingdom of god is near and from their perspective how can jesus bring about the promised messianic reign and establish the kingdom of God promised in the Old Testament, how is he going to be able to bring that about without the participation and help of the scribes and the Pharisees? I mean, from a human vantage point, the odds are not in their favor. And Jesus, no doubt, anticipating their confusion, they were often confused, kind of like you and I, no offense. Um, Jesus anticipates their confusion and their potential discouragement at the whole thing. And he sets out here to explain to them how the kingdom of God is going to come on earth. And it's a corrective to their wrong understanding that would map onto the zealots and would map onto the Munsterites of the 1500s and map onto all these other misunderstandings about how God's kingdom comes in the world. Because naturally, we think we can strong arm it. We think we can bring the kingdom of God about by force. That's an inflated view of our significance and power. And it's a minimalistic view of God and His power. And this is what Jesus is just sort of illustrating for us in a really dramatic way in this simple illustration. So look with me at verse 26. And Jesus, or He, was saying to them, or He was saying, rather, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night. And he gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle. Because the harvest has come. Now, I want to think about this little parable from two points of view. First, let's think about man's contribution here. And what we need to see from this is really how dependent this man is. And man's delusion is that he is an independent creature. 
That's man's delusion. And Jesus undercuts that here. Verse 26, He cast the seed upon the soil. So there's some activity, some responsibility there. Of course, He would bloat that up and make him feel, Himself feel so important and significant. You know, I'm the one who cast the seed on the soil. He casts it on the soil, but then what does He do? Verse 27, He goes to bed at night and gets up by day. We'll just take it phrase by phrase. He goes to bed at night and gets up by day. In other words, he casts the seed on the soil, and then he goes about his normal routine. And the idea here is iterative, meaning it's a repetition. It's something that he does again and again. That is, rising and then going to sleep. Over and over. He does it again and again. He does his work during the day, then he goes to bed at night, he wakes up in the morning, he does the same thing over and over, much like you and I. And while this man just goes on and on about his life, while he sleeps, something incredible happens. That little seed that he threw into the soil begins to sprout and grow. Now, I know that seems dull to you, perhaps. If you're like me, when you read that the first time, you thought, wow, this is a very dull illustration. But really, if you stop and consider the marvel of a seed in soil becoming a plant, it really is something. An acorn becoming a live oak. It's, a, it's an amazing reality, and, and we're so used to it because we see it all the time. I mean, we crush acorns while we're walking on the sidewalk. It never passes our mind that, huh, that little guy is going to become that guy someday. It, well, if I crush it, it won't. So rake it to the side. Give it a chance, for crying out loud. But we're so used to this. I mean, you can really imagine Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? They don't know anything. God is taking them by the hand and teaching them everything. Right? They need wisdom. It wasn't just you know, uploaded into their system. God is with them in the garden. He's training them. This is what you do. This is how this works. Dan, Pastor Dan said it this morning. Uh, unless God tells us how to do something, we don't know how to do it. And here is God, showing Adam and Eve everything. And he says, okay, now look at this. See this little thing? And Adam's like, yeah, yeah, it's a seed. But look at all this wonderful stuff. And God says, look, look at this seed. Now take this and put it in this little spot of soil and pour some water on it. Okay. Now go about your life. So Adam and Eve, they, you know, a couple days go by. They're off doing their thing. Adam comes back to the little garden, and he looks, and all of a sudden, he says, what in the world is that? He sees a little sproutling coming up. Anyways, you can imagine, he sort of digs the dirt around, and then he can see the seed. All of a sudden, it has germinated, and there's a little taproot growing down, and the whole of the seed is there, and he is just in awe. He calls Eve over, come check this out, you know, and they're excited and marveling at what is happening, because it's incredible. It's an amazing reality. And they just scratch their head. They say, isn't God wonderful? Look what he can do. Well, here's our man in the parable. He casts his seed, and he goes to bed, and all of a sudden, sudden one day, he looks out, and up from this barren soil, there's a blade of wheat. And then that little blade becomes a stalk, and then a head of grain forms, and finally he is able to harvest it. And, and it's amazing. Verse 27, uh, how does all this happen? He knows not how. He has no idea. He's utterly clueless. And you have to see here, what is Jesus doing? You have to ask that question. Jesus, what are you doing? Maybe he has some idea of what's happening. You know, Jesus says he, is, he knows not how. He doesn't know anything about it. And what Jesus is doing is he's underscoring the incompetency of this man. To make a point. The kingdom doesn't come by human competency. That's wonderful. We'll get to that. I just got ahead of myself. But Jesus is making the point here. He's underscoring the incompetency of this man. It's not that he's a fool. It's just that he's, he's ignorant. He doesn't know what is happening. He, he knows that if he puts this seed in the soil, something extraordinary happens over and over again. And so he keeps doing it. But why? Because he wants to eat. He does it again and again. As he plants the seed... He goes to sleep, and a miracle happens. Who gets the credit? 
Verse 28. The soil produces the crop by itself. It doesn't need you, Mr. Man. It does it by itself. Literally, on its own, the earth produces fruit. In Greek, the by itself phrase there is pushed all the way to the front of the verse to emphasize the fact that this is something that is done without the man's help. And it's interesting, the word is automatos. It's familiar, it sounds like automaton or automatic because that's where we get our English word. It refers to something that happens without a visible cause. It's like, I mean, it's a miracle. How does this happen? Well, it just sort of happens by itself. It's like an automated process in the soil. You put it there, boom, this comes out. The earth causes the seed to grow and produce fruit. And the point is that the soil does its work independently of the man. The soil does not need the help of the man. It's the farmer who needs the soil to work. He gets to sleep and the soil does the work. The farmer needs the soil and actually he's even dependent on the crop when it comes up. Look at verse 29. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Right? He, he can't even harvest the crop until the crop permits it. He just sits around, twiddling his thumbs. Can I do it yet? No, no, not yet. What about now? No, 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 just hold off. Go back to sleep. Right? And it's working. It's working and it's working. And this man is even under the sovereignty of the crop. He's under the, the sovereignty of the soil. He can't do it. He's got to wait and trust the soil. He's under the sovereignty of the crop. He's got to wait till the crop gives him permission to harvest it. He is a man dependent. He casts the seed, but that's really all he does. That's really it. He casts the seed, he plants it, and then he waits. And as he waits, entirely apart from his involvement, the seed comes to life. He has no power. He has no ability. He has no capacity to bring about the germination of the seed. He just plants it and waits for the soil to do the work. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like that. Just like that. Weak, dependent men and women casting the seed of the gospel out into the world and the sovereign God takes it from there. There's no strong arming the kingdom of God into existence. This little illustration puts that theory to rest and undercuts our tendency towards self-importance and inflated views of ourselves. This illustration wrecks the delusion of power and sovereignty that men tend towards apart from God's gracious correction. And in my own life, and I'm sure in yours as well, God uses these little illustrations, these little sort of discrete jabs to sort of bring you down a notch. Because you can, whether you you intend to or not, I hope you don't intend to, but you can tend towards this sort of inflated view of yourself and think way more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And all of a sudden you start feeling the pressure of carrying the world atlas on your shoulders. I mean, you have this view of yourself that's way beyond what Jesus says you ought to think of yourself. You are like a man who throws a seed out and goes to sleep, and God does all the rest. And a little illustration like this is timely to put us in our place. And I just want to mark two implications here. And they're closely related, but they sort of emphasize uh, slightly different dynamics of the kingdom of God. First, we see from this parable that individual salvation is a sovereign work of God. It's a sovereign work of God. Back in the parable of the sower, we saw that the Lord goes before His sowers and He prepares the hearts of His people so that they will respond in faith to the message. Remember that? If not, you can go back and do that study. But we saw that. 
But in this parable, we see that God not only prepares the soil, but God also causes the seed of the gospel to grow in the hearts of men in such a way that He alone gets the credit for the growth. The evangelist proclaims the message of the gospel. He sows the seed. And then what does he do? Well, depending on who you ask, they might tell you, well, he twists his arm and tries to bring him into the kingdom. But no, Jesus says it's not like that at all. Just like the farmer, the faithful evangelist gives the gospel and then he gets to go to sleep because he knows his part is finished. He understands that faith and repentance, the thing he wants to see in this person, we want to see them believe the gospel and turn from their sin. That's what we want to see. But we understand, or the farmer here, the, the faithful evangelist understands that faith and repentance will never come except for God's work of regeneration in that heart. You can't strong arm regeneration. Right? You can't force someone to be born again. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. Do not be amazed, I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's really similar, the, the parallel here. He sows the seed, he knows not how. Nicodemus says, how can one be born again when he's old? Jesus says, that's kind of like the wind. You understand the wind, don't you, Nicodemus? Well, the point is, no, you don't understand the wind. But the wind does whatever it wants to do. You can't really forecast it. It's going to act, and when it acts, you will know it's there. You see the wind, you see the leaves move, I see it now. And Jesus says, conversion, repentance, the new birth, or conversion, regeneration, and the new birth must come before faith and repentance come. He says, born of the Spirit. He must be born of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit of God must sovereignly bring about the new birth. And that new birth is as predictable as the direction of the wind. It's outside of your control. You can't tame it. You can't harness it and force it on someone. This is God's work. So then what does that mean for you and I? As we evangelize, as we try to be faithful with the gospel, what does John 3 Mark 4, what do, what do these passages mean for us as we share the gospel at home and beyond? Well, it means this. It means that we share the gospel with others. We tell them that God is holy. They're in trouble because of their sin. We tell them that they, they deserve because of their sin an eternity in hell. But we also tell them that because of God's love, he sent His only begotten Son into the world to live and die in the place of those who would trust in Him. And then, we plead with them to repent, to turn from their sins, and to throw themselves onto Christ for pardon before it's too late. So we urge them. We, we give them the Gospel. We urge them. We call them. We plead with them to repent and turn, all the while knowing they won't do that until God acts. But we do our part, and we pray, and we plead, and then we go to sleep. We go to sleep. We stop fretting about it. We stop worrying. God, are you going to save my child? God, are you going to save my uncle? God, are you going to act? We stop worrying. Why? Well, the farmer is able to sleep because he understands the soil is bringing about the germination process of the seed. In the same way, the Christian shares the gospel, proclaims the message, pleads, urges, cries, come, believe on Christ. But then he understands. The ball is now in the Lord's court. The Lord is the one who does the work. So that tells us we can stop worrying, we can stop fretting, and we can do more praying and more pleading with sinners to repent. 
but we leave the rest in God's hands. And that's the best place for it to be. You share the gospel, you be faithful, and then go to sleep and leave it in the Lord's hands. So that's the first implication. The second implication from this passage is a little broader. Looking at the coming of the kingdom at large. So in one sense, the kingdom of God comes in the heart of an individual every time they repent and believe. The kingdom of God is there. But there's another sense in which the kingdom of God, of course, is larger and more um, globally, and there's political dimensions when the Messiah descends and brings His kingdom. There's a sense in which God's reign will be physical on the earth. And the parable of the growing seed points out that the coming of God's kingdom in its fullness, where finally all the spiritual dimensions and the physical dimensions will align and all will be fulfilled, this parable reminds us that that reality has absolutely nothing to do with the power, the wisdom, the creativity, or the courage of humanity. It's not inaugurated by the might of man, and it's not sustained by the arm of the flesh. Further, it needs no political alliances to aid it. And it's not consummated by our courage to stand up and fight against the darkness. Now, I'm not saying cower down. I hope you're not hearing that. We should stand and we should fight. But we do so knowing that the kingdom of God is utterly, utterly unaffected by our failures or successes. Because the kingdom of God is unaided in its fullness by the hands of men because It's brought about sovereignly. And that's the point Jesus is making here. God doesn't need our help getting the world whipped into shape so that Christ can come back to earth and receive the kingdom that we've prepared for Him. That doesn't even make sense, really. He doesn't need our political maneuverings or our clever evangelistic strategies God brings and will bring in His kingdom in its fullness by divine fiat. He is in charge. God's kingdom is no more hinging on Republicans or Democrats in the 21st century than it was hinging on the scribes and the Pharisees in the 1st century. You see the parallel there? It's, it's pretty dynamic. It's powerful. It looks utterly hopeless. It looks like we've lost grip of everything. It looks like we missed our shot. And Jesus says, no, 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 look. It's not like that at all. Let me tell you what it's like. It's like a man who sows seed and goes to sleep and the soil produces all of this wonderful growth. You stop worrying. You just do what I'm calling you to do and let me take care of the rest. The kingdom of God, despite who is in the White House or on any earthly throne, the kingdom of God marches on. And it's utterly unaffected by political movements, utterly unaffected by moral reforms, really. The kingdom of God is so guaranteed because it will come to us by decree, meaning that it's inscrutable and unstoppable. God will bring about His purpose. And I know you believe that, Uh, I just want to show you that from Scripture so that you'll be more confirmed and more confident in your view. Because there's a tendency for us to sort of look around us and see the thing kind of tailspinning, right? And think, why do I need to do something? What do I need to do? Well, I, I just want to remind you, as you venture out to do one thing or another... Whatever you feel convinced is in in your heart before the Lord is right here as far as political involvement, as far as sort of turning the tide one way or another. I just want to remind you that you can sleep because God is in charge. You don't have to fret. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry because God's kingdom and the plan of human history is unfolding exactly as He has decreed. And for us, that is wonderful and comforting. And we have nothing to fear. Let me show you. Turn over to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 
By Isaiah 64, I mean Isaiah 44. I see how that could be confusing. Isaiah 44. As you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context. The prophet Isaiah here is speaking to the nation of Israel, really to Judah, who at this point has been carried away into captivity. So Isaiah is writing for a future audience who will receive his message and be strengthened. But at the time of this event that Isaiah is addressing, Jerusalem has been fully destroyed. The city raised, the temple destroyed. And from the human vantage point, uh, the kingdom is now gone. And all hope is lost. And it looks as if God's plan, really, for Israel, for the kingdom of God, all of that is just sort of fizzling out, and, and the darkness you know, will win the day. It's just a bleak discouraging time for God's people. But I, I just want to point out, before we get into the text, ultimately, that discouragement on their part, it was hard and there was all sorts of atrocities committed against the people of God. So I'm not saying that life was easy for them. It was very hard. But their discouragement was not a result of a change in God. Their discouragement was the fruit of their own forgetfulness. They forgot who was in charge. And they forgot that God's kingdom is invincible. That it will come exactly as He has promised. And there's just a little principle there that to be noted. When you forget who is in charge in your life, in your circumstances, when you forget who's in charge and who's responsible for what, it always leads to despair and discouragement and hopelessness. Because in the void of leadership, you know who steps up and takes charge? Y-O-U. And that's not good. It's like the farmer going out to the, the patch of soil and just you know, sweating and worrying, and he's so nervous that this little seed would come up, and he just loses his sleep. And because what's going to happen to the seed? Is it going to come up? Is it going to do what it needs to do? Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And Jesus says, look, just go to sleep. Just go to sleep. Remember, I'm in charge. But in the void of leadership of your life, you'll look around and you think, well, no one's on the throne here. I better ascend it and take over. The result of that is always hopelessness, despair, and discouragement because you don't have what it takes to direct and orchestrate the affairs of your life. And God's discharged you of that duty, but we forget and we try to ascend His throne. But God's aware of this, and God was aware in this time that His people had forgotten Him, had forgotten who was in charge. And so He wrote or spoke through the prophet Isaiah uh, to this discouraged people in order to set them straight. And let's pick up Isaiah 44 in verse 24. Now I'm going to warn you, we're going to read a lot of text here. So you better have your Bible open. If you don't have it open yet, I encourage you to open it and look as we read. And as we read, I want you to be looking for who's in charge. Who's in charge? Who's the sovereign here and who is dependent? Verse 24, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself. I didn't need you for that. And spreading out the earth all alone causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back, and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of His servant and performing the purpose of His messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. You should know here, just a note, Cyrus is the king of Persia. And this is 150 years before Cyrus is even on the throne. And talk about proofs for the reliability of Scripture. Cyrus is not even born, so Isaiah is receiving this, and I mean, he doesn't even know who Cyrus is. No one does. No one's thinking about Persia. Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. 
and he will perform whose desire? My desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundations will be laid, just to remind you of your uh, Old Testament history. Who, who was the one who paid for and rebuilt the ruined temple? Yeah, Cyrus. This is the Persian king. And the Lord says, look, he's going to do what I want him to do. Okay? Chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darknesses and hidden wealth of secret places. How is Cyrus, how is Persia going to pay for the building of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem? Don't worry, I'll take care of it. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden wealth of secret places. I'll make you wealthy and rich. All the while, Cyrus is thinking, man, I'm doing a great job. And I'm really something. And he says, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. There is no God besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And Isaiah goes on. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created. Do you see the agricultural metaphor? Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Verse 9. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, To what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, The Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward. Who is in charge? Isaiah keeps going. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature. These are important, significant men. They will come over to you and they will be yours. They will walk behind you and they will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you, they'll say. And there is none else, no other God. Truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord. They haven't accomplished it themselves. They have been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. Verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Listen to what he says. I am the Lord and there is no one else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourself and come, Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge. Who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. The reason they have a God they carry around 
is because they've elevated themselves to the level of godhood. And they want to have their gods below them. So they'll carry their god around with them. And look at verse, we'll jump down uh, to chapter 46. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Those are Babylonian gods. They, they've fallen down. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beasts. Now what he's saying there is, look, the gods of the nations of Babylon, they're going to have to be carried away into captivity, just like you guys are being carried away into captivity. Cyrus, the Persian, is going to conquer the Babylonians and show that the Babylonian gods are nothing. And they're going to have to load these gods up that they fall down and worship. They're going to have to load them up on, a, on an ox and carry their god out of the city. And you see that. It is laughable. It's utterly ridiculous. But this is what happens in the absence of leadership. In the absence of a real god, you're going to exalt yourself as god and put lesser things below you that you can, uh, you can control. So take your god, put it on your ox, and get out of town. Verse 2. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. You see the issue. Now that's the wrong view. That's the way that men tend towards is inflated views of self where God needs me to do the work for Him. I need to manufacture His kingdom coming so that He can come back, and when He comes back... It'll all be ready, and he'll be happy. But look at the next verse, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, don't think you're carrying me around. I don't need you. I, I don't need you to carry me around. On the contrary, I have borne you your whole life. You were just deluded. You thought you were carrying me around. Because of your pride, because of your arrogance, you thought you were in charge. But now you know. This is where your leadership gets you into exile and captivity. You want to follow that way? I've let you follow that way, but the time will come when I will put an end to it all. And I want you to know, says the Lord, you have been born by me from birth, and, I, and you have been carried from the womb. Even, verse 4, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even into your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Do you get the point? <laughs> Don't even think I need you, but you need me. And here's the wonder of the gospel. I'm committed to you, says the Lord. I'm committed to you. I am disposed towards you in a favorable, loving way, not because you're wonderful, not because you're worthy, but because my son died for you. And because of that, now I will carry you about even to your graying years. Verse 8. Remember this. And be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So let me ask you, who's in charge? Who is dependent on whom? Now, there's no question here. And we can multiply text after text to say the same thing, but the point is that God is not looking for us to usher in His kingdom or to carry Him about. He's got it together just fine. And despite the opposition in our culture, 
despite the darkness that seems to be growing around us and the regression of our society, which is real and we ought to stand up. I'm not saying we don't. But despite all of that, God's kingdom continues to march on. And God is accomplishing His purpose. He doesn't need our human coalitions, our politicians, or our crusades to help Him out. He's asked us to do one thing. One thing He's asked of you. Sow the seed and go to sleep. Sow the seed and I'll take care of the rest. Reminds me of James 5. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Be patient. The kingdom is coming. Rest. Go to sleep. Stop worrying about it. Do something. Do your part. But then go to sleep. The kingdom is coming. You too be patient. James 5.8 Strengthen your hearts. Why? Because you're prone to be discouraged when you look around and you see the degradation of society. And you're prone to think, well, God's not on His throne. I better get up there and do something. Strengthen your hearts. Four. The coming of the Lord is near. Very soon, the Lord will descend with a trumpet. And the kingdom will have fully arrived. Until that day, we labor on confidently. Not confidently in ourselves, but confidently that the one whom we serve is on his throne. And that makes everything okay. And we trust Him, and we labor, and we trust that His kingdom is coming sovereignly, that our part is not to leverage the arm of the flesh through political means or strange coalitions, but our part is to stand confidently on the promises of God against opposition and to shine the light of the gospel in a dark world. And then we get to rest. And while we rest, God accomplishes His purpose. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are at work in a world that often seems to be spinning out of control. And Father, we know that we would do well to remember that your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Your kingdom endures from generation to generation. That all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing before you. That you do according to your will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? And Father, we worship you. We praise you that you are the God who has saved and redeemed us. And you call us to proclaim the good message of salvation and then to leave it all into your hand. And so that's what we do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.